told. Uh, we've looked at his wisdom, his teaching. Uh, we have looked at his righteousness. We have looked at, we have encountered um, what he had to say about, about judging. We have uh, looked at him in his authority. Uh, we have looked at him in his description of the kingdom of heaven. We have looked at how he has handled rejection. We have seen him confrontational. We have seen him testing people. Right, and, and what, one of the reasons I want to do these, one of the reasons I highlight this, is so that we understand as many aspects as we can about Jesus. Right, I think many of us carry in our mind a very stereotypical Jesus, right? The, pic, the way we picture him most of the time, and, and it can be kind of flat. It can be one-dimensional. But he's the God of the universe, and he is never flat or one-dimensional. There are so many facets and aspects to his character so it's not that he's, you know, this week he's in his glory and the other week he's this or that. He is all these things at all times, right? So I want us to understand all these facets of him so that we can begin to get a little bit of a picture of the infinite God that he is, right, and the amazing qualities that he has. So, so today we're really, like you said, looking at, at Jesus as the judge, as the glorious judge of the world. We are continuing the Olivet Discourse, right? That's the fancy name for Matthew 24 and 25. It's the last major speech in Matthew. Remember, Matthew has five big speeches. That's kind of the structure of the book. Um, chapter 24, 25, it's all about the end time. So last week we looked at chapter 24, and it ended with two parables. And they had, they had fairly straightforward points about the end times, right? One was to be ready at all times. It's going to be a surprise when he comes. And the second one, the point of it was that, that blessed is the one who, who, when Christ returns, is found doing his will. Whereas when Christ returns, the one who is not, is not going to be blessed. And chapter 25 begins with two parables that really, I think, expand on those points a bit. Uh, they're extensions of it. I want to talk about them briefly, but... The bulk of what I want to spend our time tonight is talking about the, the scene of the final judgment that he describes uh, in the latter part of the chapter. But the first parable is the parable of the ten virgins. Uh, I'll go ahead and read it. And again, I want to, I'll talk briefly to these. I'm not going to go into as much detail as we sometimes do on these uh, because the point, I think, is relatively clear, but we want to make sure we remember it because it's, it's a point that matters. So it's in the... Uh, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. Okay, we talked about some of the reading clues that help us know. There's a good reading clue here, right? We probably want to be like the wise ones. For when the foolish took their lamps, <clears throat> they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, this is a key concept, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. 
Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. The background for this parable is a wedding procession, which there's varying interpretations of how what direction you marched in a typical wedding procession <coughs> back in the day. Um, but it's typically at night, most likely you'd go in a procession from the groom's house to the bride's house where you would have the ceremony. Then you would go back to the groom's house for the party. Again, I've read some differing. Well, they typically go the other way. Seems like that might have changed in the last 2,000 years, but they still do these kinds of processions today. And so they would carry torches. They call them lamps, but <coughs> odds are they're really torches um, with rags soaked in oil. So obviously that's not going to burn for a really long time unless you have your own supply of oil uh, because it's not like a flashlight. It's not like a big Coleman lantern with a ton of, ton of oil in it. Sorry, should have brought some water. The groom was delayed. What we have here is reiterating the point that was made in the earlier parables, that the return of Christ is probably going to be later than anyone expected. Now, the good news is we can look back 2,000 years later and say, yep, that was probably later than anybody back then was expecting. They were not in any concept thinking 2,000 years. So they're delayed. And they go to sleep. And I want to make sure that's clear. That's not a problem, right? There's no judgment on them. They all went to sleep. It's fine, right? Because the big problem was what happened when they woke up? What was their situation when they woke up? Well, five of them who were prepared for the long haul, they persevered to salvation. They entered into the feast. Thank you. For the others, it was not so good, right? And we don't want to make any points about those selfish ones with the oil who didn't share. The point they say very clearly, there wouldn't be enough oil for anyone, so they couldn't share. So the short point of this, right, is that the ones who came prepared for a long duration before the return, they are the ones who enter into the feast, right? And I think we're to understand the feast as salvation, uh, as entering into heaven. I think this is consistent with what Jesus said in 20, Matthew 24, 13, right? This is all one speech, so it's always good to remember that. 24.13, he says, But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Right, That's talking about the sort of tribulations and suffering that will be experienced uh, in the end times. Again, the point is it's going to be longer than we want it to be. But the one who endures. I think it's also consistent with the teaching of the parable of the four soils. Right, Where you have the, the one person, gets, the people who get really excited, but... They're not really in it for the long haul, right? They have an excitement about Jesus, but they don't have a genuine saving faith in Jesus. So I think the, the, the point here, right, it's consistent with everything else he's teaching in Matthew, right? Genuine saving faith, the kind that produces fruit, that's the sort of thing that's going to persevere to the end, right? We don't have anything to worry about there. But faith that isn't genuine, that isn't really built for the long haul, where it's maybe an intellectual interest or a little bit of excitement, but it's not really a genuine turning to God, a genuine turning to Jesus Christ. That's, that's not the sort of thing that's going to persevere for the long haul of life. It's not the sort of thing that's going to persevere for the long haul until the end times. And, and I want to emphasize only Jesus can tell the difference in that. It's not my place to uh, pick that out for one person or for another person. 
And then I want to draw us back to the emphasis of verse 13. Right? Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. So key points from the parable of the ten virgins. It will be delayed. We don't know the time. Be prepared for the long haul. We could talk lots more about this one, but I don't really want to belabor the point because I do want to talk mostly about the judgment at the end. But if you have questions, by all means, throw them out, uh, and I'll try and do my best with them. Okay, we'll talk briefly about the parable of the talents. I love the parable of the talents, uh, but I'm not going to talk a lot about it today, <laughs> uh, which is, you know, kind of a shame because I do. I think it's a great. It's great. Uh, we got a few minutes, so I actually I'm going to go ahead and read it. I hadn't been planning to because it's long, um, but I'm going to anyway. And I think the most important thing to take away, right, is that we, we talk about the parable of the talents a lot. It gets preached on a lot. It's important to realize this parable is being told in the context of the last judgment. It's being told in the context of what's going to happen in the end of times, right? So the consequences of this are really, really important, So he goes on, for it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents. Now that's a, that's a big pile of money, right? A talent, varying weights on a talent. It's hard to, hard to be exactly sure. Uh, but it's about 75 pounds of a metal, right? So maybe it's 75 pounds of silver. That's a lot of money, right? I don't know what silver is about an ounce these days, $15 an ounce thereabouts. If it's gold, right, we're probably talking millions of dollars that he's giving to this. So the important thing to take away is he is entrusting with these servants an extraordinary amount of money. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. Right, I read it, I was reading a lot about this um, this weekend, and... Uh, the important thing to realize is like they didn't have stock exchanges and stuff like that back then. So, so when it talks about trading with it to make money, what it really probably means is that these guys basically started a business. right? They went out and took significant financial risk. They started a business. They did a pile of work um, because you didn't just put it in the market and day trade with it or something like that. So, we also, so also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, right? Here we are back to the same theme, right? Because this is about judgment. This is about the final judgment. So once again, after a long time, that emphasis, it's going to be a while, right? Again, 2,000 years later, we can agree. The master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Yeah, you better believe it. That's a lot of money. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And then 
what I think is important from my perspective, one of the things that's most important from my perspective is we listen to these next few words and understand they are identical. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you... Now he insults his boss. I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. Again, this is fairly rude, what he's actually saying here. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Right? I was the sort of person burying stuff in the ground. That was... Not uncommon. We already had the parable about the buried treasure of the field. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not... Even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. All right, so this is actually a fairly harsh parable. right? But it is, I think, fundamentally it is expanding and clarifying that point of what we're supposed to be doing until Christ returns. So you recall at the end of chapter 24 there were the two parables. And the second parable talked about the servant who is doing the master's business being blessed. And, and here I think we're getting an expansion. What does it mean to be doing the master's business? Right Now, the end of 24, it gave an illustration or, or some clarity about things like caring for people, feeding those under us for whom we are responsible for. Well, here we're seeing something else. Right, They've been given this enormous sum of money, each of them, and it's based on their capabilities. Right, So the giving out was unequal this distribution of, of what they were responsible for managing. But two of them don't mind that it's unequal. They immediately, and that is an emphatic concept here, they immediately get to work. Right? Who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them. Right? Went out, started, they ran businesses. You know, entrepreneurial skill for the master. Right? They didn't borrow, I mean, because you could have been like, I'm going to take his money, I'm going to start a business, I'm going to keep half of it for myself, he'll never know, right? They don't do that, right? They take the master's money, they recognize they're doing business with the master's money, they recognize they've been given this responsibility, they're prompt, they go out, they invest it and do significant uh, work, right? They double their money, each of them. So the five becomes ten, the two becomes four. And the point is, of course, right, we are supposed to be investing everything that God has given us, Spiritual gifts, natural talents, um, developed abilities, education, skills, life experiences, and yes, money and time. All right, we are to be investing this kind of in an all-in fashion in building God's kingdom here on earth. All right, that's the work. That's what it means to take these talents, these gifts. And, and the thing is, is if we do it regardless of how much we're gifted, right? Whether our gifting is in this little area, or we have five gifts that are awesome, you know, or whether we can sing tremendously, or whether there, no one would ever want to see us sing, uh, it doesn't matter what our gifting is, we're supposed to be using it, and regardless of what it is, and regardless of how much we have been given, whether it's a little bit or an enormous amount, right, the master's response is the same. 
three things. Well done, good and faithful servant. Right? This one motivates me a lot. This is what I want to hear. Then he says, I will set you over much because you are responsible over little. So, so there's, there's the praise of the master. Then there is responsibility in heaven. Right? I believe that that is what this is teaching. That part of the reward of faithful service in this life is a stewardship and a responsibility in heaven. We see that when you look in Revelation, we look at other passages in the Bible, we are not sitting around strumming harps in heaven. Right? We have responsibilities. They're going to be great. Because we aren't going to be in a fallen world, right? It's not, work's not going to be unpleasant in any way. All right, we're going to enjoy doing it. So, so you get responsibility. That's what I believe. I believe that's what Scripture is teaching. And I think it's going to be great, right? It's going to be like your best day at work, but better, right? And then enter into the joy of the master. Well, that's part of why that best day of work that goes on forever and ever and ever is going to be so great, because you're in the joy of the master, right? You're in heaven. You're in the presence of God. And that was true regardless of whether you're the five-talent Christian or the two-talent Christian. Or the one-talent Christian if you did your job. And if we don't, if we're the person who says, I don't have the faith to go out and use this money, I just think that God's going to punish me, the master's going to punish me, I think the master's cruel, right? Because that's what he's saying. I think the master is conniving. I think the master is, is basically a thief. This is kind of what the servant's saying back to him. Right? The, this person is condemned. Right? I think we need to understand this person obviously did not have what we would call saving faith. Right? This person is being damned right here. Jesus is not making any bones about it. When he says, uh, you know, cast this worthless servant into the outer darkness, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth, that's it's damnation. And again, that's not that the person was a Christian and they didn't do their job. Right? We're not teaching works-based theology. Scripture is clear on that. Right, but rather that this person had no faith. They were still given gifts by the master, right? And that's true of every human being. We're all created in the image of God. We're all given gifts by the master. But not all of us recognize that he's the master and that he's worthy of immediate, immediate going out and investing those gifts. So that's my little quick on the parable of talents. Questions or thoughts on that? We're flying here tonight. I think it's part where I'm like practically about to like choke. <laughs> so I wanted to spend the most time on on this one, which is you know if this passage doesn't entire doesn't disturb you at some level, I feel like you probably need to read it again. Um, this is a challenging passage, verses uh, 31 to 46. It's, it really is now speaking of the final judgment. When the Son of Man comes into His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. That's Jesus, right? That's going to be pretty awesome. The Son of Man comes in His glory, all the angels with Him, and He will sit on His glorious throne, right? We see His righteous reign Visible. Right? We talked about his righteous reign a couple Sundays ago and uh, in the coming of the righteous reign, and here it is. Right? Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. So when Christ returns in his glorious return, he is going to judge, and he is going to be judging all the nations. He's going to be judging everyone, Jew and Gentile. 
believer and unbeliever. They're all going to be judged, and he's going to be separating people like sheep and goats. Now, that's not an image that like super well works for the average suburbanite in Northern Virginia. So let me give you a little background. I have a picture, but I didn't bring it here because I, I would need to like project it, and I didn't. That was way too much work for this week when I was like in bed. Uh, but in the Middle East, you typically, even today, thousands of years later, they still will typically commingle their flocks of sheep and goats. And from a distance, or when they're on the move, they actually look pretty much alike if you're not a shepherd. Um, it's a bunch of you know speckled and brown animals running around making an annoying noise. Uh, sorry, if you like the noise, it's not annoying. Right? But they look a lot alike. But they typically have to separate them at different times. They have to separate them sometimes at night because goats like it warm and sheep like it cool. So sheep like to hang out outside under the stars and goats want to be in the in the, in the pen with each other all bundled up. Obviously, if you're trying to shear wool, you kind of separate the goats from the sheep. You better effects. They probably will separate them for things like milking and, and so forth. Right? So there's a, a need to separate them. Visibly, they look very much alike to someone who's not an expert. And yet a shepherd can separate the sheep and the goats very efficiently, very effectively. They do it often. Um, it's not a big deal for them. I think there's some things to learn from this, right, from the fact that, well, you know, if you're in that flock, I mean, I guess you know what you are, but, but it's a little hard to tell what everyone else around you is. It's just a blur of smelly animals right around you, right? And so I think there's, there's some lesson in here that we have seen elsewhere in Matthew related to the fact that there's going to be people up until the judgment, we're going to be commingled, believers and unbelievers, right, the saved and the, and the unsaved, um, the good and the bad. This is a repeated message, right, weed of the weeds, uh, a couple other points through, uh, through Matthew, right? So if anybody's wondering why are there bad people around, he said there would be. The so verses 34 to 40, right? He, taught, he addresses the sheep. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world, right? That's heaven. Let's be clear, right? Kingdom of God, prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him saying, What? What are you talking about? No. They'll respond, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? or thirsty and give you a drink. When did you... When did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So the righteous, the sheep, right, they get to go to heaven. That's the, the kingdom that's prepared. And they sort of say, they're, 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 I don't think they're necessarily surprised that they're going to heaven. But they're kind of surprised by the reason he gives, right? Jesus gives them a reason, and they're like, I don't know what you're talking about, right? Because he says, oh, well, it's because you, you fed me, you gave me water, you, you cared for me, you welcomed me, you visited me when I was sick or when I was in, in prison, when I, you took care of me as a stranger. <coughs> and they're like, I have no idea what you're talking about right now, Jesus. And he says, 
when you did it for the least of these, right, the poorest, the neediest, right, the immigrant, the jailed, the least of these, my brothers and sisters, right, and it's worth noting, I think this means Christians, right, the least of Christians. And now there are plenty of other places in Scripture that says we need to be caring for loving all our neighbor, right, love our neighbor as ourselves, right, so I'm not saying don't love people who aren't Christians. But I think that this passage, he is specifically citing the way we treat other Christians, those most in need, those who are refugees, those who are displaced, those who are, um, again, immigrants. When we do that, we do it for him. When we do that, we do it for him. And they're obviously very, very surprised about this. Right? And, and again, is this, is this rude to say we only care for Christians? Again, it's not saying Jesus doesn't say we don't care for other people. Right? He tells us to love our neighbor as ourselves. But this is not the only place in Scripture that Jesus calls out a special place for the way we care for other Christians. Right? John 13, 34 and 35. Right? This is the, the way that everyone else is going to know that you're disciples of me. Right? That you love one another. Right, so there is a, a special aspect of the Christian community, of the church, where we are called to care for not just one another because we're friends in church, right, but Christians everywhere, Christians in homeless shelters, right, Christians in, in, in houses at, or in communities after disasters, right, Christians who are suffering from, from poverty, from unemployment, from illness. And the verses 41 to 46, he, he basically does, says the opposite to the unrighteous, to the goats. Then he'll say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer. They're surprised too. Saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick in a prison and did not minister to you? And he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So for those who, who did not show care for those around them, he's saying the eternal fire, right? The eternal fire that that is prepared for, for the demons, right? For, for Satan. He's basically condemning them to hell. And I think the most important thing we have to address right off the bat, is this teaching salvation by works? That you have to do good things to be saved? No. Now, I can see why this is, would be easy to read into this, right? This is part of what makes this a challenging passage. Right, is that it seems like it's it's works based, and I think there's no for a lot of reasons. I'll give you some no's, starting from as close to this passage, to so then moving a little farther out on why it's no. Right, it's no because in verse thirty-seven, he refers to them as the righteous, or the sheep of the righteous. That's their condition. That's their state. They're not righteous because they did these things. They are righteous and they did these things. Right? 
Matthew 121, we'll move a little farther in one direction, or all the way back to the beginning, right? The angel says, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins, right? He will save them from their sins. They won't save themselves, right? There is no place for works-based righteousness here in Matthew. Matthew 20, 28, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Right? People don't ransom themselves. Jesus ransomed himself for us. And I'll give you one more. And again, the Bible is full of reasons why it's not salvation by works, but I'll give you one more. Because I don't want this to be a point of confusion, right? And I also don't want it to be a point of fear. Like, maybe I haven't helped enough people. Maybe I haven't helped enough Jesus. Maybe I'm in trouble. Maybe I'm a goat, right? I don't want us to be come away from here worried that we're a goat. If you are, in fact saved by Jesus Christ, right? If you have faith in Christ, you're a sheep, right? In fact, it works a little bit different. But I'm going to go to John in this case, chapter 3, right? Verses 14 through 18. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, right? Refers to an episode in the Old Testament where bad stuff was going on. And so Moses, curiously, is ordered to make a bronze snake and put it up on a high pole and... The people have to look at it, and if they look at it, they don't die. So as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up on a cross, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Right? Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Right? This is not works-based. Right? Go on to what's the most famous verse of Scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him, right, not by doing good works, through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, right? That speaks specifically to judgment, right? The condemnation is a legal term. It refers to what happens if you get a guilty verdict in a judgment. So in that final scene of judgment, when Jesus is on his glorious throne, the goats are condemned, right? Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So I think we need to remember, right? The sheep and the goat are both surprised about Christ's reason for the judgment, which means that they didn't do their good works in order to get in to heaven because they're surprised. Right? It means they didn't do their bad works and the expectation of going to, going to hell because they're surprised. Right? So again, it's not works-based. They're as surprised as anybody. Jesus is very clear. Real faith, though I think this is the point he's making here, real faith does these things. Right? These activities flow from a life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ, a life-changing faith in Jesus Christ. Now, that could be sobering for us, right? Because if we haven't seen any change in our life, we're not particularly compelled to do anything nice for anyone around us, it should make us a little bit nervous. I'm not saying anyone here is like that, right? But, but it should make us nervous if we were to see that, if we were to that extreme, right? If we're, if we're going around saying, bah, humbug, you know, or Ebenezer Scrooge and, and treating everyone terribly, that's not a good sign. 
Right? That's what Jesus is saying here. That real faith does these things. The kind of faith that's going to save you, the kind of thing that made you a sheep in the first place, will carry itself out by caring for the least of these. Right? Not just by coming to church and praising God every Sunday faithfully, but you should, of course, but by finding a way to care for those in need, to care for those who are lonely, those who are lost, those who are sick, those who are jailed. Right? Real faith does these things. Real faith transforms us. Right? That's the consistent witness of the New Testament. Doesn't mean we're instantly perfect. Right? We're not perfect till we get to heaven. We still mess up. We're going to mess up. That's the good news. Is that we can mess up and we still have a God who's faithful to forgive us. Because Jesus Christ sacrificed himself. But real faith is going to change how we see it, people, how we look at people, how we treat people. It's going to go back to that question of the talents, how we use our gifts, how we use our abilities, how we use our money, how we use our time to treat people. Because as we saw, right, we went back to when we were looking at the kingdom of God, right, at the very beginning of our study of Matthew, what was the kingdom of God or a kingdom of heaven, rather, in Matthew? He always calls it kingdom of heaven. Right, the kingdom of heaven was proclaiming the good news, yes, preaching, right? It was healing, Right? It was caring for people. It was, it was restoring in little bits and little pockets a little sense of what, what creation was supposed to be, what creation will be again when Christ returns. Right? I think this is what James means when he says that faith without works is dead. <coughs> James gets a lot of criticism. Uh, well, he got a lot of criticism from Martin Luther um, and others because he doesn't actually use the word Jesus, I don't think, anywhere in his letter. I think James is a terrific letter. I don't think that he contradicts Paul in any way, right? These are some of the myths out there. I think one of the things we see most often is that if you carefully read James and you carefully read, say, a Matthew in particular, you begin to realize that an awful lot of what James is saying is really just echoing the teaching of his brother, right? He's extending his brother. He's not, it, there's a subtle inclusion of the direct words of Jesus, you know, just woven through. And so when he talks about faith without works being dead, I think it's, it's exactly this kind of thing. <coughs> it's intellectual knowledge, right? Not genuine faith. It's intellectual knowledge about Jesus, right? Might be people who go to church all the time, but they never put their faith in Christ as Lord and Savior. I think it's important to remember as we sort of wrap this one up, um, we're slightly ahead of schedule. What can I say? I talk too fast. Um, Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Right? The Great Commission. The end of Matthew. Right? What I view as the mission of the church, both universal and every church that is truly a church, is about making disciples. Right? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, the dominant word, as I've shared before, right, the dominant idea is make disciples. This is the, the verb that controls this statement in the original Greek. And then there are two ways that you make disciples. There's two aspects of discipleship that are invoked. Right? One is the baptizing part, right, bringing them to an initial faith. The other is the teaching part, teaching them, and what is it, right? It's not just a little bit, it is to teach them to observe all 
all that I, Jesus, have commanded you. So there are two aspects of genuine discipleship, real discipleship, real faith, right? One is professing that faith initially, right? But one is living a life that is transformed by that faith. That's really what it means to obey everything he commands, is that life of transformation, right? Not because we want to try real hard to be transformed, but because Christ transforms us through our faith. So if you look at those two aspects and you realize well, yeah, that's kind of important then, right? It's one is that we know about Jesus and we've been, you know, put our faith in him. And then the outworking of that is going to be a life of obedience, a life of transformation, a life where we do care for the least of these, a life where we can feel confident that we are sheep, not goats. And that, I think, is what we want. And Jesus is not here to set people, I think, on edge. I think he wants to, he's challenging people, right? But really he's preparing his his people to understand what life looks like and what the end times look like. Questions on that? Yeah. Uh, can we go back to the sheep and the goats? Certainly. Um, I think through the years we've looked at that as the sheep are those who receive salvation, the goats are those who have not. Yes. Okay. Try, try to bring that forward to the world that today, I noticed that the goats also called him Lord. Yes. Are we suggesting there that goats are pretend Christians? I think that, well, this is... You started off, if I, unless I misunderstood you, by saying he's talking to Christians, and he's talking about how we treat Christians. Well, when he says, least of these, my brothers, it's just the treatment of Christians, yes. Okay. Not, not the goats. Right, but I do think it is possible that <clears throat> so there's two answers on the goats, right? One is that they could be people who just recognize he's on the throne, he is Lord, right? Because the scripture does teach that when he's on the throne, everyone's going to recognize he's Lord. Uh, but it is also, I think, possible that we're talking about people who, some people who go to churches every Sunday, but don't have a genuine faith in Jesus Christ. Um, you know, to some extent, modern-day Pharisees, I'm going to flip back to, I think it's chapter 5. Um, let's see, five, twenty, no. Uh, chapter seven, Matthew seven, twenty-one, Sermon on the Mount. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? Right? So they did the impressive stuff. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So he's consistent with that teaching. Um, that there will be people who put on a show of their religiosity without having a genuine faith. Right? And I think, I would think the goats know it. Right? I think they know that they don't have a real faith in Jesus Christ. But on the other hand, it may take a while for that dawning to occur, right? Because we know that we can be deceived. Um, that's why it is. there should be signs of transformation in our life. There should be fruit in our life. Now, is there on day one of being a Christian? Is there on day 10? No, not every. You know, some of us start slow. That's for sure true, 
right? So it almost takes some time to get really rolling on anything. It takes a while to get convinced that transformation is something we should cooperate with. Um, but at some point in our walk, right, we should see fruit. We should see some sort of changes about us. But again, I'm not saying that to, I don't want anybody to like sit on edge like, man, I'm not sure I'm saved, right? That's not my point here, right? If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you've trusted in him, you're saved, right? The, the Holy Spirit is, seals us and guarantees us, right? There's a number of passages. Um, I usually go to Ephesians, I think, 114 on that for the seal and guarantee, but there are plenty of other passages that make it clear that if you're a, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're not going to lose your salvation, Um but there are definitely people who are putting on a show of religiosity that probably are not actual believers. That's been true, I think, for 2,000 years. Other questions or thoughts? All right, well, that brings Matthew to a close uh, for us. Maybe we'll make another pass someday because there's plenty more. Uh, But we will look ahead to Mark uh, when we return for the new year. Let's take a moment in prayer, and then we'll, we'll go our separate ways. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the honesty. We thank you for this glimpse of Jesus Christ and his glory. Lord, we thank you for his life and his sacrifice for our lives. Lord, help us to be reassured, all of us who have put our faith in him as Lord and Savior, that we are among the sheep. Lord, we pray that you would continue to transform us, to make us ever more sensitive and caring for those around us, those in need, those in fear, those in illness. And Lord, if there are any here, or more likely those we encounter in our day who do not yet have that assurance, who do not yet have that faith in Jesus Christ, help us to have an urgency. As we look at these words of Jesus Christ, words that are not comforting for those who are not saved, those who who do not yet know your Son as Lord and Savior, give us an urgency to share. Give us the words. We pray that your Spirit would be working in their hearts to bring them to conviction and to faith. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.